Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, talks with David Parsons, Head of the Public Fixed Income Investment Specialists at M&G, about whether interest rates have peaked, and if so, will central banks start cutting them soon? Or are there more clouds on the horizon for the global economy? Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. We're joined today, as you will have heard, by David. Uh, we're very, very uh, lucky to be joined by David, who is famous for a number of things, but fixed income is certainly one of them. And as usual, and I can claim no credit for this, but David joins us at an almost perfect time, at a moment when the last couple of days we've seen quite a sharp rally in stocks and bonds and a few commodities as well, seemingly some sort of all clear being called by investors with regards to the this very sharp rate rising cycle. We'll see whether that's premature. But I think it's a good place to start off, David. So let's try and work out where we are. Is this time different or are we really just waiting for the effects of interest rates to take hold? Which camp do you fall into? It's difficult, isn't it? Because how many times in history have people cast things as this time it's different. <laughs> Dangerous uh, when, words, but indeed. I'm told. And you, you, you return to it at your peril. I think. Yes. When you look at the the market environment today, particularly in fixed income area, it's complicated. We're somewhat in uncharted territory. We're coming out of one of the sharpest and most aggressive tightening cycles by central banks in the major markets mm. that has ever been in in the modern era. So the implications of that for borrowers, for uh, investors, and for corporations as well, is, is it is quite manifest. Mm. So if you consider that when you tend to have these really rapid cycles, often what you find is that, that first of all, the pendulum will typically swing from too loose policy to too tight, in this case, rather quickly, and things break. We saw that back in March with SVB and Credit Suisse. Perhaps that was just a symptom of potentially other things to come. You can't rule out the fact that something else may break Mm -hmm. or indeed something may be broken and it just hasn't surfaced yet. And it it is only really when you get to these points in the cycle that often these these problems can become apparent. And it's only obvious after the event as well, isn't it? So we we can always look at our, our crystal ball and try and sort of bringing together the the myriad of facts and data that's out there. And you you almost risk analysis paralysis Mm. because there is so much information in today's technological age. How do you sift that to find the key nuggets of information that are going to help you to navigate Mm. what are quite challenging times? So you made a very good point at the start that perhaps we've had a good couple of days here. I'm always happy when we have a good couple of days in markets. Notwithstanding that, I think there's a tendency to to extrapolate yes. on the part of investors as well. And I would say that there are still some really significant issues that have yet to be fully explored and, and fully dealt with. Mm-hmm. For example, particularly the US economy, where we would see that as being the, the global bellwether stock for what happens in the UK and, and in the European markets. And when you look at what's happening in parts of that economy, although at a headline level, some of the right things are happening. Inflation has been coming down. I, I think the the Federal Reserve, along with other banks, is doing a very good job of selling the narrative that rates will stay higher for longer as a way of squeezing inflation out of the system. But 
inflation, well, if you go back 18 months ago, was supposedly only transitory. Mm. And now we find ourselves with some, some fairly well embedded inflationary pressures. If you look at what's going on under the hood, to use an American expression, mm. in their marketplace, you can look at the housing market where existing home sales are grinding to a halt. And that has huge implications because mortgages are not portable in the US. Yeah. So if somebody's job moves from, say, California to Florida or Texas, and there's certainly plenty of evidence of those sorts of things happening, you would have to redeem your mortgage at 3.5% and take out a mortgage at 8%. So it doesn't feel likely as in terms of a yes, so, sound financial so the, the second order effects of what's going on at the moment, yes. I think, are really bubbling beneath the surface, but will make themselves more apparent over time. And yet, and the problem here, I guess, is kind of like, how does one, and this is always the problem with cycle killers, isn't it? It's like, how does one decide whether something is substantial enough or worrying enough to become a problem? Particularly when you look at you know the latest data on consumption, you know if the U.S. is the the bellwether stock, then the U.S. consumer is really the sort of bellwether consumer. It seems to be motoring. I mean, the, the sort of you know we were pointing out the other day that in the last six months, I think retail sales has been growing at double the pace pre-pandemic. Now that can't be sustainable, surely. But to what extent can this kind of smooth over any cracks that are coming, given the strength and employment? Well, this is the kind of evidence that people are pointing to as maybe indicative of a soft landing of the US economy. To me, it also means that actually that consumer activity is more likely than not to keep the Fed wanting to to maintain this narrative of higher for longer, Mm. even if the market is trying to sort of rail against it and say, no, you know, recession is coming, surely, therefore we must be cutting rates. If you look at the the rate expectations in the US market, that the market is already pricing in the equivalent of two to three cuts in US interest rates in Mm. the second half of next year. But at the same time, they're still also forecasting inflation above what would seem to be normal levels. So Mm. it's kind of a cake and eat it situation going on in the market at the moment. I wonder whether the, the resilience of the US consumer is it having a wily coyote moment that it's kind of it's run off the cliff, its legs are still spinning, and at yes. some point it's going to stop? Look Fresh down air and go, below. Oh. So yes. well, I'm giving my age away here by uh, by talking about yes, <laughs> both are car- a bit, cartoons yes. from my youth. Yes. That said, I, I think the there are, are still I think signs that the consumer is potentially running out of a little bit of puff, but you know that's not all bad because that actually suggests that ultimately the Fed is doing the right thing and Mm. and the policy will work over time. But the question is whether they stay not so much too high for too long or or they don't cut soon enough might be the issue. They may keep rates at an elevated level beyond the point that makes sense. And I think there'll be differing dynamics in other markets as well, because Mm. within the European market, you're seeing much clearer markers of recession with very, very anemic levels of growth in German economy contracting the most recent quarter and flat the quarter before. Mm. So as close to being in recession without being in recession as you could possibly say. And really, if you regard Germany as the European bellwether, perhaps to take that allegory forwards, I think the European market appears to be slowing potentially faster than we're seeing elsewhere in the US, for example. So with Germany, how representative is that given Germany's quite unfortunate sort of sandwich between a heavy reliance on Russian gas versus a heavy reliance in terms of inputs and in terms of outputs a heavy reliance on China both of those things might have been helpful in some stages in the past and not so at the moment so how representative can we see the German economy as of a broader 
European malaise or do we also with Europe you see again like in the US like UK like Europe you're seeing incomes real incomes going into positive territory Mm. for the first time in several years you know which itself could be a recession indicator where you see real yields on bond markets moving into positive territory Mm -hmm. but to your point on Germany I think Germany is in danger of being squashed between these two competing forces where Mm. you have a, a declining demand for their end goods and a and rising input costs. And we're seeing that coming through with very low expectations in terms of future economic activity and where they think growth is going to be next year. It's surprising to me that that people are still so optimistic of the the, the growth prospects in Europe for next year. We're, we're, it's still forecasting 1% growth at the moment if you look mm. at the ECB for pan-European growth, which I think is, is possibly a little on the optimistic side, but I would argue that actually to your very point, I think there will be dispersion of, of returns and, and opportunities mm. around Europe that, I mean, investors will have to be, I think, a little more nimble uh, yeah. in finding which of those markets are going to be the more resilient markets or alternatively, which ones are actually rewarding you sufficiently for the risk of being in them. Interesting. So, I mean, just in terms of sort of framing those comments on both the US and Europe, are you guys sort of thinking along the lines that, I know we talked about the dangers of this time is different, but there's no doubt there's some underlying aspects to the global economy which look different to what they were previous to pandemic. There may be a different trend in productivity. Inflation does look a bit different. That doesn't mean it's going to stay a bit different. So do you see a sort of a new normal in bond yields and interest rates more generally? Is that sort of the implication of what you're saying? Or are you saying actually the last cycle was right, that we're going to see a return to sort of those kind of lows in terms Mm -hmm. of interest rates, monetary, you know, the setting of monetary policy and so on? I would say that perhaps if you if you discount perhaps the last five or more years of where we've been with interest rates, and then you look over the very long term, very long term, so 20, 30 years of, mm. of interest rates from central banks, you could certainly say that the sorts of levels that we're seeing with five and a quarter percent US, five percent UK, four and a half percent in in Europe, you're close to the long term median levels. Mm. And that would suggest that any rate cutting cycle that might follow would it take us back down to the, the zero interest rate bound again? Mm. It seems unlikely because it was only really special circumstances, I think, that, that drove us to those levels. So perhaps the next interest rate cycle, the floor will be significantly higher, mm. something back to the old normal rather than a new normal. And the old normal, we might see maybe a percent or percent and a half off interest rates over a, yeah, over a period of time in order to provide some support and stimulation to economies. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we go all the way back down to, to where we were. And I guess also, I mean, there's the, the sort of emerging points about, you're seeing lots of studies coming out now about the effects of the last period of very low interest rates. But there seems to be some idea that, that low interest rates can breed low interest rates to a degree because of the way that they remove or reduce the cleansing effect and also confer sort of bit more power on megacorps potentially. There seems to be some of the work. So one wonders whether central bankers are going to change their sort of view on what the lower bound actually looks like and what stimulative monetary policy looks like, but yes. Stepping into something like high yield, for example, Mm. a lot of companies, not perhaps just high yield companies, but a lot of companies' business models were predicated on basically low yields forever. And I think their business models also would include, for example, a largely floating rate exposure to, to financing as well through perhaps high yield and leverage loans, particularly in the US where the leverage loans market has ballooned over the last 10 years. Mm. So I think there's 
there will be some companies out there where the the current level of interest rates is going to be extremely challenging yeah and will be challenging for some time to come and if this becomes the new normal may even take their business model out completely and they may no longer be viable you've only to look at the modest but but clear direction of travel in terms of defaults in the the high yield sector in the us and europe moving upwards mm. clearly an interesting factor is that actually the recoveries in default are moving downwards. Investors are realizing far less yeah. from their investments. And I think that's another another aspect of what I was just describing, really, of business models that were really predicated solely on cheap finance. And that yeah. cheap finance has now been withdrawn. Now, many companies had the opportunity to borrow long and, and took advantage of it. I suspect if you were sitting in the, uh, in the US Federal Reserve right now, you'd be wishing that more of the US debt had been termed out at that point in time. Uh -huh. But the reality is that they indeed have a, a rising bill themselves of paying for, for their debt mountain, yeah. uh, which is seemingly growing at a, an a unfettered pace is probably the best way to describe it. I mean, the borrowings for the third quarter, uh, the deficit in the US was a, an extra trillion dollars, but what's that amongst friends? What is that? Uh, and then it was a, a trillion and a half over the next two quarters, but I would argue that's probably guessing. Well, it um, helps if you've got a monopoly on violence and the ability to raise taxes, if you so exactly. could agree to. Yes. But notwithstanding that, I think one of the issues that is facing anybody who is a, a borrower who's raising capital at the moment is the increasing cost of debt servicing. Whether mm. you're a, an individual paying your mortgage, whether you are a company who's borrowed and, and has to, to pay their, their debt back, or whether you're a government. The, the size of deficits are ballooning for governments. Debt to GDP is getting to levels that we're not used to seeing from developed countries. And similarly, corporations, their interest bill and their, their ability to cover that, which of course is it's a fixed cost effectively. Mm. Um, dividends can be cancelled, but you know you, you have to pay your bondholders, otherwise all sorts of do, nasty things do. can happen to you as yes. a company. So ultimately, the US has got to find an extra near trillion dollars just to pay the bill on their existing treasury mountain. Mm. But corporations similarly have pressures to, to meet their interest costs, as indeed do individual borrowers. So I think we're, we're into a position at the moment where I think a lot of people are hoping that interest rates will go down mm. quite soon. But the shape of that, that interest rate expectation with the sort of higher for longer narrative, that somehow it's going to be almost like a table mountain of a steep rise up and then a plateau for a long time and then a steep drop. I think it's arguable about the the shape and the timing of of how interest rates may move when you look at the the, the many moving parts that we've described within economies, companies, and, and individuals. So mm. I would be remiss if I didn't say that. However, the expectation that interest rates can only go down from here, well, who knows? Yeah. You know, there there is a not inconsequential risk that if we get a sort of a second peak in inflation, it may well require central banks, or they may feel that they have to to respond to it with higher interest rates. Policy rates. But I mean, I guess the sort of, you know, the more optimistic slant would be that you could also have higher real interest rates from a recovery in productivity from the lows of yes, the last indeed. the last decade. So yes, there are many paths ahead, some more difficult, some less so, but let's, let's pray for the less, less difficult ones. You mentioned there the sort of, you know, some of the company debt exposure. Investment grade. I know you guys have been building exposure, I know we have too, over the course of the summer. Give me some of your thoughts on that area. So the, the corporate bond market, I think, is, is at an interesting point because if I were to take the European corporate bond market as my kind of starting point, then yields of around about 4.5% are, at an all-in level, are comparable 
to what we saw at the absolute peak of the euro sovereign debt crisis in 2011 <laughs> 2012 when supposedly the sky was falling in the euro was going to break up and that the yeah, southern yeah. european countries were going to be spun off into oblivion thankfully that didn't happen um, <laughs> but it does suggest that at these sorts of levels if you were an investor who was just looking for from a european perspective uh, good carry reasonable security in what you were doing and a point at which to begin to build risk, and I think that's the key, then I, I think we're at an interesting level with that juxtaposition with, yeah. with 2011, 2012, where people were very happy to buy risk at that point. But you also have to consider that when you're buying a corporate bond, there are two components to it. There's the underlying interest rate component, and there is the, the credit spread or additional return you get for lending to a company, perhaps rather than the government. And when you're looking at this, I think there is a risk that they could potentially if you came into a recessionary period, you could see the interest rate component going down, but the credit spread component widening yeah, out. Yeah. So broadly speaking, it may remain at an all-in yield level unchanged over time. But nevertheless, if you're comfortable owning it at these levels, then that should be less of a concern. I think more interesting is in an environment where credit, if I may say, for too long, too many people have regarded corporate bonds as a almost a risk-free asset. Trust me, they're not. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's that... The key is to really understand the risks that you're yes. taking, and, and that takes tremendous hard work and resource. And to be honest, there's for investors, there's not always a lot of information out there that they can lean into mm. to, to really inform them of the risks they're taking. A lot has changed over the last five to ten years in terms of the, the marketplace, the, the size, the shape, the dynamic of it, uh, that makes it an increasingly challenging environment, but one where you can find good opportunities. So for example, if you were to look at the corporate bond market today, I think particularly in Europe, there are some interesting opportunities that have been created by the dispersion of opportunities. So you have parts of the market which were subject to quantitative easing purchases by the European Central Bank under their pandemic emergency program. Those have been effectively purchased by a price insensitive buyer for many, many months. At an average, I think it worked out as 72 billion euros a month of corporate paper they were buying over about an 18 month period. So in that situation, it has distorted pricing because the things that they were buying, uh, it drove the credit spread lower and lower and lower. But on the other hand, the things they weren't buying are now at, at much more comparably attractive levels. So for example, the financial sector and banks in particular are, I would argue, quite interesting in Europe. For a long time, they, they've been contrasted with US banks as somehow that they are riskier. But actually, if you go back to the global financial crisis back in 2007, 2008, and at that time, the, the capital that banks in Europe held was very low. They mm. were sort of four to 6% of tier one capital ratios and very little reserves, basically. You look at them today, they're more like 12 to 15%, and in some cases even higher. So the, they've cleaned up their, their balance sheets. They have, from a regulatory point of view, they're not as exposed to assets that they hold on their balance sheet in the way that US banks are. And you could also contrast the fact that banks in Europe are not competing for funds in the way that banks in the US will typically have to do, where they're fighting against money market funds that are constantly giving sort of five, five and a half percent yields in dollar terms, and, and banks are struggling to offer their depositors same sorts of money, which can lead to outflows, which we all know where that led with uh, one or two notable banks back in March. So I think the environment in corporate investing can be challenging, but I think that there are opportunities amongst, for example, the banks, as I've mentioned. But those are sectors where perhaps from a fundamental perspective, the market is 
overstating the risk, but then you have other parts of the market where perhaps the price and the risk have become out of alignment. So for example, the real estate sector, and th- these are companies that were borrowing to finance commercial building, um, commercial development opportunities, and other areas of the property market, real estate investment trusts or REITs, which now having fallen very substantially in price and being very sensitive to, to changes in interest rate environments, one could argue that now the, perhaps the pendulum has swung too far with these as well, that mm. maybe there's a, an opportunity there selectively. And if you can actually nail down and isolate the risks that you're, you're taking and, and make an assessment as to whether they're being appropriately compensated, then there's good opportunities there as well. So the credit market is, is an interesting place, <laughs> uh, but you, you have to be careful and you have to be prepared to flip over many rocks to, to see what's underneath, I think. Yes. And not be too disgusted by what you find. <laughs> Couldn't possibly comment. Yes, exactly. David, thank you. That was extremely helpful. And enough for today, I think. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, David. And we shall speak again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.